A'udhu Billah Sami'ul Alim Minash Shaitanullahim Ar-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad wa ajjal farajahum Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh And welcome to this last session before the holy month of Ramadan and uh, inshallah, this is going to be the session with which we seal the topic of prophethood uh, with a lecture specifically related to, uh, in Arabic, it's called Al-Khatamiyyah or Khatm al-Nubu'ah, which is the sealing of prophethood. Um, so I will remind you that, uh, you know, as per your request, inshallah, we are going to have one more session related, you know, indirectly to this topic. And that will specifically delve into a question that we received a couple of times. We answered it at a high level, but as we said, I think it deserves to be discussed in a little bit more detail. And that question is, if Islam is going to be, is the last revelation to humankind, then why was it revealed uh, in Arabic? And so the answer to this, uh, I think, deserves to be given in detail. So inshallah, this is going to be the first lecture uh, that we give following uh, the, the break that we're going to take for the holy month of Ramadan is going to be directly addressing this uh, topic or this question, why was uh, Islam revealed in Arabic? So inshallah, with that topic aside, today is going to be the last of the uh, topics that we have or the lectures or the gatherings that we have, the discussions that we have related to the specific prophet of our prophet, the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad And as we said, this is going to be uh, called the seal of prophethood. So Prophet Muhammad being the last of all the prophets. So uh, once we give the general introduction to this course or to this uh, discussion, to this lecture, the way it's structured is basically that there are Quranic arguments, arguments from the Holy Quran to establish that the Holy Prophet is the last of prophets, is the seal of prophets. There are uh, narrational arguments, so the arguments from the hadith, narrational. Uh, and then we go into this question of why is it that the Holy Prophet's prophethood is the last of prophets? What's the secret? What's the reason for ending prophethood? And then uh, a possible objection that we may hear related to this topic and the answer to it. So, generally speaking, so before we just jump into this topic of, of the sealing of the prophethood, let's remember what we've built until now. We said that, uh, first of all, we want to make sure that we understand how we got to the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu so we establish the necessity of prophethood. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide humankind, will guide all of his creatures, including humankind. And humankind has been created with a free will, the ability to choose and so on and so forth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to send people, these prophets, who are going to be carrying his message and his teachings to humanity. And then we said one way to establish the prophethood of these people in addition to knowing them specifically or having a prophecy about them from a previous prophet is to look at their miracles. And then we took that topic and that notion and we applied it specifically 
to the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad So we said when we study his character himself, when we study the previous prophecies about him from other prophets too, and then when we study his miracle three, and we spent a little bit of time on his miracle, specifically the Holy Quran, and we established on one side that it is miraculous, on the other side that it is authentic. When we put all of this together, we are at a point where we can safely say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent prophets. One of them is the Holy Prophet Muhammad and that he has been sent with this miracle to guide humanity. And then the last time that we met, we said now we want to look specifically at the type of teachings that Prophet Muhammad came with. And those include uh, two very important distinctions. The Prophet of Prophet Muhammad include two very specific distinctions. The first is that his message is universal. And the second one is that his message is eternal. So we looked at the topic of religion, of Islam being universal and being eternal. And we said, this is going to answer the question, what if someone says, well, there are all of these other religions, all of them are valid, all of them are good, all of them are sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the proper teachings to guide humanity. Why don't I choose, why can't I choose the one that I wish to choose to uh, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and use it as the set of teachings that are going to get me closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we said, if we agree with everything that has been said until now, we established clearly from a Quranic perspective by going through a number of uh, different verses of the Quran, we established that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent this message as the universal message to humankind. That this is going to be the message, the, the set of teachings, the religion, the revelation that all of humankind has to follow. So everybody who lived at the time of the Holy Prophet has now to subscribe to this, to follow this new set of teachings, one. And two, everybody who's going to come after him is also going to have to follow this set of teachings. So when we looked at the universality, we said, first of all, there is a consensus. This is a matter of consensus. It's uh, uh, everybody in Islam and even outside of Islam are unanimous that Islam claims for itself universality. Everybody has to enter into this religion now that it has been revealed. That's one. And two, when we looked at some of the verses of the Quran, we saw that the Quran addresses all of humankind. It does not limit the way it addresses people to this group or this race or only Arab speakers or only the family of the Prophet or so on and so forth. There are no limitations to the manner in which the Holy Quran speaks to humankind. That's one. And then when we looked at the eternity, we said that when we look at are there any time restrictions? Does the Quran say that there's going to be a time when a new revelation is going to be imposed or shared with humanity or not? And we said, no, the Quran is very clear. In fact, it says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wishes to see this religion become the dominant one. So all religions are going to be subsumed under this religion, which is the teaching of Islam. And uh, we saw that the verses that speak to humankind are also not limited in time. So when you put all of this together, you say that the Quran is very clear in that Islam is universal and Islam is eternal. So this is in terms of the religion. This is in terms of the uh, message and the set of teachings that were sent to humankind. And 
We also said that someone may object going back through some of the verses of the Holy Quran by saying, well, some verses seem to say that the Holy Prophet is only sent to his family or that uh, people, there are verses of the Quran that say that people who worship different religions, including uh, especially Ahlul Kitab, well, they have been granted spe special uh, case. And so they are allowed to worship and to continue to worship according to their own faith and their own beliefs. And they do not need to enter into this religion. And we gave the answers to this and we're not going to spend too much time repeating all of that. So this is the point where we're at. So Islam itself, we said, is universal and eternal. This has, should be very clear until now. So the point we're trying to move past uh, right now is, okay, Islam is the last religion. Islam is universal and eternal, but what about the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad can, come once, can someone come and say that there might be other prophets sent to humanity to guide humanity that people can follow uh, beyond Prophet Muhammad even though they are not being sent with a new set of religion. This is not a completely, entirely new religion that they're being sent with. It's still a prophet sent with a guidance to humanity that follows in the same path as the uh, teaching of the Holy Prophet. So to give a better example, if we look at the histories, the stories of the prophets in the Holy Quran, for instance, we know that Prophet Lut lived at the same time as Prophet Ibrahim. So in the same sense, maybe there are other prophets living at the time of the Holy Prophet, who may also, we may also follow them, use them as our guides. When we look at Prophet Harun, he lived at the same time as Prophet Musa, but then after Prophet Musa السلام, to Bani Israel, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent hundreds or thousands upon thousands of prophets. None of them were sent with a new religion to Bani Israel. All of them were working with the, the general framework that Prophet Musa السلام, gave them under the general guise of the religion of Bani Israel, the Judaism that was brought by Prophet Musa السلام, But this did not prevent Allah Subh'anaHu from sending many, many, many other prophets, all of them working within that framework. So someone can come and say, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa yes, he has sent Prophet Muhammad. Yes, his religion is the last religion. It's universal and it's good. But this does not disqualify, this does not exclude the possibility that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will still send other prophets to guide humanity. Now, why is this important? Why are we discussing this? This may not, be, may not look like it's a very big deal. But the truth is, if we study religions, anyone today, today's world, you're going to be exposed to all sorts of faiths. You're going to see that there are all sorts of claims out there. And... Including in those claims, we see people, for instance, who follow the Baha'i faith, al-Babiya or al-Baha'iya, the Baha'i faith. How did the Baha'i faith start? Well, there were people who were, to start with, they were followers of Prophet Muhammad And at some point, there's someone, uh, his name was uh, Muhammad Ali al-Shirazi, who basically presented himself to the world as being a Bab. Who, so he presented himself to the world initially as being the Mahdi, the promised Mahdi of Prophet Muhammad And he also said, he foretold that there's going to be a greater prophet sent right after him. And one of the people who followed him is uh, the Mirza Nuri, who later would start this whole faith called 
Baha'iyya or Al-Babiyya. So he claimed he was put in jail for his beliefs initially. This is in the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. He was put in jail and in jail he says he started receiving messages directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and 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 slowly you have a new religion that grew initially there was even a, a disagreement amongst them is this a completely new religion or is this a religion that is within islam and the same thing happened with another group the ahmadiyya or when people want to you know use a term that they don't like al-qadiyaniyya sometimes they refer to them mirza uh, ghulam ahmad he's he began a, a group that today they consider themselves to be muslims they consider him to have been the one who was supposed to be the mixture of Prophet Jesus السلام, and Al-Mahdi, the promised one who will appear at the end of times. But he was also receiving new revelations and he wrote them and he sent them to people. And this became a new set of scripture. So there are claims that each one of these now has between 10 and 20 million people following them in the world, in all the countries of the world, both the Ahmadiyya and the uh, or the Qadianiyya and the Baha'i faith, people followers of the Baha'i faith, fall into these groups where initially it should have been within Islam, but then there was a claim of prophethood and revelation, direct receiving direct revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this continues. So it may seem for someone who doesn't want to look at faith and you know you you think that you you already have your faith set and all of that, you may not be impacted by this. But anyone who's actually looking into religions is going to be faced with this question. Well, how come are we saying that while Islam is the last of religions, who says that there are no other prophets being revealed to at the time of the Holy Prophet, as was the case with people like Musallam al-Kadhab and others who claimed to be receiving messages from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or afterwards, as we have seen with you know, the founders of Ahmadiyya movement or the Baha'i faith. So this is the reason why we need to look into this idea of the seal, the sealing, the khatm, of prophethood. Okay, so that's kind of to put, give a little bit of rele relevance to the topic. Before we jump into the Quranic argument for uh, the sealing of prophethood, the truth is if someone has followed our logic until now, we're going to come back to that at the end. Thank you for the question. I'm seeing them. Um, if, we, we, uh, if we have followed the logic that we have presented until now, someone who has understood that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent prophets, including Prophet Muhammad, so he is an authentic prophet, he is sent to humanity with a universal and eternal message, this should be enough to say I am no longer going to even be open to the idea of looking into the prophethood of anyone else. Okay? So this should be enough on its own without requiring additional proof that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to be sending any other new sub-religions, sub-revelations, sub-teachings to anyone else after Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa This should be logical and good enough. But that said, when we look into the Quran, we see that there are some indications, and then when we go into a hadith, a lot more indications, that there is no prophethood beyond the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad So if we now go into the Holy Quran, what does it say? There are multiple verses that we can use. The most important and the clearest one is verse in uh, Surah Al-Ahzab, verse 40. It says, Muhammad is not the father of any man among you, 
but he is the messenger of Allah and the seal of the prophets, and Allah has knowledge over all things. Now, this verse, we don't have time right now to get into the, the details of why this verse was revealed and all the context around it. The Arabs of the Jahiliyyah and the early Islam, they used to believe that if someone adopts a son, that son has the same relationship with the adoptive father as a biological son to their biological father. So Islam said, no, when you adopt someone, that is going to be an adoptive son or adoptive daughter. They do not become a blood relative as a result of this. The lineage does not get lost, and Islam keeps the distinction between a biological son and an adopted son. So the Holy Prophet had someone that he had raised. He had many, in fact. One of them was Zayd, a man by the name of Zayd. We're not going to get into his whole story now. So some people were starting to call the Holy Prophet by the name of Zayd Abu Zayd as though he is the father of Zayd. And here the Quran is making it very clear. There is a distinction here. This is an adoptive son. You cannot consider him as a biological son to the Holy Prophet. So this is the first part of the verse. So it's not relevant to us for now. Muhammad is not the father of any man among you. That's why it's revealed. But the second part is the relevant one where it says, but he is the messenger. So if we do not call him, you know, the father of Zayd, then what do we call him? The Quran says, call him the messenger of Allah, Rasul Allah, or and Khataman Nabiyyin, the seal of the prophets. So here the Quran is very clear that the Holy Prophet is the seal of the prophets. And Allah has knowledge over all things. Okay. Now, there are people who have looked at this verse and they've tried to create an objection. And there are two main objections against this verse about the idea of sealing of prophethood to uh, be argued with this verse. The first one is that they say the meaning of khatam, khatam and nabiyin, the seal of the prophets. What does khatam mean? Well, it could also mean the ring, right? People who know Arabic know that khatam also refers to a ring that you wear. What's the distinction of a ring? The distinction of a ring is that you wear it to beautify yourself. It's an ornament. You wear it to look better. Okay. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they say in this verse, he is saying that the Holy Prophet is the khatam, as in the beauty, the ornament of the prophets. The most beautiful, the one who ornaments them, who beautifies them. That's the meaning of the verse. That's the claim. The second claim is, they say, He is only the seal of prophets. He's not the seal of messengers. Okay? So he may not be, while he may be the seal of prophets, he is certainly not the seal of messengers, as per the verse. So what's the answer? If you look at the etymology, or the reason why Khatam was called Khatam, so this is a Khatam as in a ring. Why was it called a Khatam? What do you do with it? There was a time when people used the khatam to do khatm. And khatm is basically placing your insignia, placing your signature on something when, once you seal it. So I write a letter to you, as the Holy Prophet did himself. If you read his history, he would write these letters and those of his companions told him, why don't you do khatm of it? So that they know that this is coming from you and it has not been tampered with. So how is it done? They put a little bit of wax, they close off the letter, they put a bit of wax on it, and then they seal it. So everybody who has a ring, they have their signature on the ring, and you put it on the melted wax, 
and then everybody who receives it knows that they're receiving it with your signature on it. It has not been tampered with. Okay, so if you understand this, you also understand that the term for khatam initially, and as it's being used in the verse, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I'm sealing prophethood, he's not talking about the decoration. He's not talking about the ornamental aesthetics of the ring. He's talking about the function of the ring, which is to seal what has been sent to humanity through prophethood. He is the seal of prophets. That's one. And the second objection, which is even weaker than the first one, so this one is pretty simple and straightforward. The second one is, and we should, it should be clear to all of you who have followed, especially through the general prophethood uh, lectures, we said when we understand the relationship between a Rasul and a Nabi, it seems that there are no Rasul messengers who are also not prophets, who are not Anbiya. In other words, every messenger is a prophet. Not every prophet is a messenger. So, in other words, everyone who is receiving this type of revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a prophet. Some of them are given an additional duty or an additional function. Those are referred to as messengers. And from within messengers, we said there are also ulil azm, messengers who, have, who are resolute or who has a patience or who have so on and so forth. We, we translated the term ulil azm. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that from all the prophets, there are some who, are, who have become messengers, and the last of all the prophets is Prophet Muhammad sallallahu then obviously he is also the last of all the messengers. Had the verse said, and he is the last of all messengers, someone may come back and say, but what about prophethood? There might be prophets who are going to come after him. And that's why the verse said, no, he is the last of the prophets. There are no prophets after him, messenger or not. There are no prophets after Prophet Muhammad Now, if we go, this is what we find in the Holy Quran. Now let's go to the Ahadith. If we go to the Ahadith, to the narrations, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of them that can be used to establish that Prophet Muhammad was the last prophet of the prophets. We have in a number of narrations, Prophet Muhammad saying things like, O oh people, there is no prophet after me, and there is no nation after your nation or after my nation. There is no ummah after my ummah. In other narrations, he says, and there is no sunnah after my sunnah. So there is no prophet after me, and there is no sunnah after my sunnah. In other words, there is not going to be another ummah belonging to a prophet after me. Because I am the last of the prophets. There is not going to be a sunnah, a tradition of a prophet after me because I am the last of the prophets. We have a narration very well known where the Holy Prophet says, my example among the prophets is as though someone came and built a beautiful house, a beautiful building. And then when people started walking around it, they would see that it's beautiful and very nice, but in the corner, the corner brick is missing. So everybody would say, but there is something missing here. It's as though this building is incomplete and everybody can see that this building is incomplete. It's only missing one brick, but it's the corner brick. In other words, it's the one holding everything together. That's how important it is. And the Holy Prophet says, my example amongst the prophets is like someone who has built a beautiful building 
with the corner piece missing, the corner brick missing, and I am that corner brick. That's what I refer to in the points here as a narration of the brick. In other words, he's the one who completes the entire mission, the entire chain of prophethood. He's the one who perfects the chain of prophethood. So he not only plays a role at the level of his people following him, he also plays a role at the level of the chain of prophethood in the history of humanity. If we go to a narration like Hadith al-Manzil, very well known, right after the battle, the Ghazwat Tabuk, so the Holy Prophet was about to leave. Imam Ali salam was ordered by the Holy Prophet to remain behind uh, in Medina al-Munawwara. And Imam Ali salam cried. He wanted to be with the Holy Prophet and he thought that maybe there is some, some reason why the Holy Prophet is asking him to stay behind and not give him the honor of accompanying him and joining him. So Imam Ali salam cried in that instance and the Holy Prophet came back and told him, do you not want to be in your relationship to me, like the relationship of Harun to Musa, except that there is no prophet after me. So here, Imam Ali salam was left for, he was not left behind for a, something bad he had done. He was left behind because the Holy Prophet is showing his rank and how close he is to him. And if he is to leave one person behind to rule over Medina while he's out, it's going to be Imam Ali salam. So he's being left for the same reason that Prophet Musa left Prophet Harun behind when he went to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he went to receive revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The same thing was being given to Imam Ali salam. But the Holy Prophet says, but there's a difference in that there is no prophet after me. So you're not a prophet, Ali. You are not a prophet. Harun was a prophet. His relationship to Prophet Musa was that he was his successor and he was his brother. Imam is being told by the Holy Prophet that you are my successor and that you are my brother, but you're not a prophet like Harun was to Musa. Okay? And if you go into the ziyarat and if you go into the ad'iyah, well, there are so many examples where the Holy Prophet is being referred to as Khatam al-Nabiyyin and the last of the prophets, the last one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send. And then if you add to it the narrations that we read, some of them, especially in the last lecture, we talked about how Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq salam say that halal uh, Muhammad halal ila yawm al-Qiyamah, haram al-Haram ila yawm al-Qiyamah and other narrations there's a clear indication here that nothing is going to come to change this set of teachings presented to humanity. And if you look at the previous prophets and their prophecies about Prophet Muhammad, they not only said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send so-and-so prophet with so-and-so description after us, those traits after us, but he will also be the last of the prophets sent from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so when you put all of this together, this is the... Uh, basically the corpus of the ahadith that we have is very clear in that the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is the last of the prophets. Now to add to this, let's go to a few words from Imam Ali alayhi salam. There are many of them. There are maybe eight or nine that I found, but here are three very clear instances where Imam Ali alayhi salam is talking about the Holy Prophet and clearly stating that he is the last, he is the seal of prophets. So he says in the first sermon, Allah never allowed his creation to remain without a prophet deputized by him or a book sent down from him. Sorry. Or a book sent down 
from him or a binding argument or a standing plea. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always ensuring that humanity has a clear guidance for them. Then he continues, these messengers were such that they did not feel little because of the smallness of their number or the largeness of the number of their falsifiers. Among them was either a predecessor who would name the one to follow or a follower who had been introduced by the predecessor. In this way, ages passed by and times rolled on. Fathers passed away while sons took their places until Allah deputized Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny, as his prophet in fulfillment of his promise and in completion of his prophethood. So this is in the first sermon from Najjal Balagha. If you go to Sermon 133, and a very quick note about Nahjul Balagha, there are a couple of editions out there. So in some cases, there is a difference in the number of the sermons. Usually it's not off by a lot. It may be off by one or two numbers. So in one case, you might have the Sermon 133 here. You might find it number 134 or 35 because they flipped uh, one or two sermons uh, before. In Sermon 133, Allah deputized a prophet after a gap from the previous prophets when there was much talk among the people with the, with him allah exhausted the series of prophets and ended the revelation and in sermon 234 this is when the holy prophet passes away imam ali salam says may my father and my mother be a ransom for you that which has ceased with your death never ceased with the death of anyone else before you prophethood Revelation and the affairs of heaven. So here's where Imam Ali السلام, is making it clear that the affairs of prophethood have ended forever with the passing away of the Holy Prophet. It's as though humanity has now been deprived of something that had happened since the time of Prophet Adam السلام, continuously until the time of Prophet Muhammad. Okay, so if we move on to the Next part, why is it that we are saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seals prophethood? If we go back a little bit to the topic that we presented before, we said that why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends multiple prophets over time? And we gave multiple reasons. We said one of them is that it was very difficult for the teachings and the revelations of a prophet to be communicated to everyone. That's one reason. So it doesn't reach enough people. Means of communication don't exist. It's very difficult to get the message out and so on and so forth. Another reason is that the context changes so much that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to reveal a new set of teachings coming with a new prophet. So generally speaking, humanity has increased in complexity and in sophistication and the way they think and the way they live, they constantly needed new rulings and new teachings and a new system to regulate their lives. The previous system could not do it anymore. And then added to those two reasons, we have the third one and we spent a good lecture specifically on it and we mentioned it as well elsewhere and that the teachings were being distorted again and again. So while the system was being taught, while the teachings were making it to the people, there were people who were tampering with it. And it was no longer considered an authentic set of teachings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to humanity. These, each one of these separately 
is a very good reason for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send new prophets. Taken together, they represent the reality of humanity. So it was difficult for things to be communicated and the teachings were being tampered with and societal changes were happening at such a pace and to such a degree that they required, human beings required new sets and new teachings and new regulations and uh, system. Now, when we take these reasons and we apply them to the teachings of Prophet Muhammad what have we said until now? The difficulty of communicating the message to all, changing the context and the complexity, and are there distortions or not? We have spent enough time explaining that Prophet Muhammad while his prophethood was short, 23 years, he was able to disseminate his religion far and wide already in his lifetime. And then his companions and his followers were able to take this and to continue to spread it to the rest of humankind. One. Two, and I'm going to come back to this point in a second. Two, the changing context. Well, with everything we said about the universality of Islam and the eternity of Islam, it should be clear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that the teachings and the system that he has placed in this religion is going to be good for any context that will ever happen to humankind after this revelation. So this system guarantees that it contains within itself a capacity to deal with any changes from now on that humanity may encounter. No matter how sophisticated or complex or different human life is going to become in the future, Islam is, is going to continue to be valid for those times, to until the end of times. That's based on everything that we've said until now. And thirdly, we've also clearly explained that there are no distortions that have taken place from the time that the revelation was revealed to the Holy Prophet, the Holy Quran and its authenticity until now, and our belief as Muslims is that this is go going to continue to be the case until the end of times. When you put these together, you see that in fact the question is, should not be, why is there no new prophet? By default, if the prophethood of a prophet is going to reach far and wide, and his communication is going to be valid for anyone who hears it, and that his communication is going to remain authentic and not distorted and not tampered with for all eternity, then there is no reason to send another prophet. And all of this applies in the case of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And that's the reason why no other prophets were going to be sent after him. Two more points to add to this argument. Human reason, and we emphasize this point numerous times, and allow me to repeat it one more, once more. We should have made it clear by now that human beings, just based on their reason, are never going to be able to tell, based on their study and analysis of what's going on, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should send a, another prophet or not. We can never know how much change is required for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say, here a new prophet with a new set of teachings is required, or here uh, the same previous religion still applies, the same teachings that were revealed before you still apply to you. We can't tell that. We may be able to analyze a little bit after the fact, but that still does not allow us to rationally say, this is the point 
where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this point in time, he should send a new prophet. To these people, in that language, at that time with that miracle, we can't tell that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls all of those factors. It's beyond the capacity of human reason. We don't know all the factors and we, there's an infinity of reasons included in there. That's point number one, which tells us what? Which tells us that without knowing from God directly whether there will be or not another prophet, we would not be able to tell. So although we gave rational reasons why there should not be any other prophets, the real reason comes from the scripture. The real reason comes from God when he says, and I will not send another prophet after this one. So this is your guarantee that there cannot be another prophet. Not your reason because your reason is always going to fall short in being able to give the right reason to. Okay, so what we were saying is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he says that this is the last, this is going to be the last of the prophets sent to humankind, the truth is this is going to be the only way for humankind to know whether this is going to be the last prophet or not. And the reason is that prophethood is not something that we can rationalize to the extent where we can say, and this is the point in time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should send a new prophet and he should send it at that time to those people in that language with that miracle. It doesn't work. So human mind is, human reason is always going to fall short in trying to understand exactly when and how a new prophet is going to be required. We can tell after the fact and we can rationalize it after the fact, but we can't tell before. So unless a prophet tells us Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to me to tell you that I am the last of his prophets, then there's no way of knowing if there's going to be another prophet or not. That's why we emphasized here on the scriptural arguments. We emphasized on the Quran argument and the Hadith argument, which both are extremely clear that Prophet Muhammad is the last of the prophets. That's one. And two, the point that we were making is that if we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is no longer going to be sending any more prophets to humankind, does that mean that there is no more divine guidance to humankind from this point on? And the short answer is no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has multiple ways to continue the guidance of humankind and it does not need to be specifically in the form of the revelation that is used with the prophets. So inshallah when we get into the details and that's the next topic in our series so once we are done this lecture and the next one as requested specifically related to Arabic and why the Quran was revealed in Arabic and why Islam was revealed in Arabic, we are going to begin the series on Imamah. And we are going to explain in what way and what does it mean to say that someone is an Imam and in what way are they an Imam? What, what is exactly their status or their role? How is it different or similar to that of prophets? But in short, they are to continue with the message of the Holy Prophet without receiving what we are referring to as revelation. They are not going to continue with a new type of <clears throat> guidance or a new set of teachings or rulings or anything different from what Prophet Muhammad was teaching to humankind. They are going to show us how, uh, the, how Islam is supposed to be applied and 
applied over different circumstances and in different situations so that humankind may be able to benefit from it. And this is especially true. Let's go to the last part of this. Let's, last part of this. Let's say there's an objection here. Let's say that someone says, fine, what have we said until now? What have we agreed on and presented until now? What we said is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent a prophet called Muhammad sallallahu alayhi who is going to be able to communicate his message to all of humankind. And this is going to be ensured through himself and the work that he did during his life through his followers and companions and through the imams. And we're going to come back to that later. Okay, so that's one. Let's agree on that. Fine. Two, the communication that is reaching human beings is going to be authentic, is going to remain without any distortions or changes to it. So it does not need any additional patching, anyone to come and say, here's where the distortion happened. Okay, fine. But we also said that religions are sent when the changes are so significant in a society, when humankind reaches a transitional point where the previous system no longer suffices. Humankind is going to require a new set of teachings in order to regulate their affairs for this life and understand the relationship with God, with nature, and with themselves. This is when a new religion is revealed or a new set of teachings is revealed. So if we come to Islam, when we come to Islam, how is it different? Someone can come to the teachings of Islam and say, well, things have changed so much since the time of the Holy Prophet that this is the time for a new prophet. This is a time for a new revelation. This is a time for new teachings. What's the difference? What's the difference between Islam and the previous religions? The point that we just made, so this is if we want to present this as an objection. The first point is the one that we just made, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to be the one who says, if the conditions have reached a point where a new religion is required, we cannot do that only based on human reason. Human reason is incapable of telling whether all the conditions are now right for a new religion or not. That's impossible just through human reason. All the philosophy and rational arguments and logic of the world is not going to be able to answer that question. That's one. The second thing is, that's the, the first point. Secondly, when someone looks at Islam, they may want to say, well, things have changed so much and humankind is always changing to the point where nothing is remaining the same. There's so much change that a new religion is required. The truth is, sometimes this argument exaggerates the rate and the extent of the changes. It is not true that everything that existed at the time of the Holy Prophet in terms of social realities and the needs of humankind, it's not true that everything has changed. If you look, for instance, at what human beings consider to be moral and ethical values, so what human beings how human beings perceive something like patience or loyalty or to what extent they understand, let's say, compassion or they understand or they give uh, a lot of importance to the notion of the good or the notion of the just 
or the notion of, and so on and so forth. These things have been absolutes in human his history, and it should not change. And the reason, and we're going to talk about it in a, in a second, because it's an additional reason to this, to, the, to this argument, is human nature. Human nature has not changed to the point where your moral and ethical values are so different that you are going to require a new religion. The social realities for which Islam was revealed are always going to remain in place. A human being is always going to come from parents and there will be this small social unit called a family that will be part of a bigger community, that will be part of a bigger society and that society is going to play a certain role in history. All of this is going to remain the same. And within that society, there are systems. There's a legal system, there's a financial system, there's a political system. These are not going to be going away anytime soon. So long as you have human beings, those realities are going to be in place and the Islamic teachings are going to be appropriate and valid for that. The laws are derived from those social realities. The, law, the laws are derived from the absolute ethical moral code that is presented by this religion. If you go to the Holy Quran and you see, for instance, that it tells you in Surah Al-Ma'adah, honor your contracts. Well, someone might come and say, human society has changed to the point where nothing in the Quran is relevant anymore. Okay, so what is true in this case is the contracts written today are a lot more complex and sophisticated and written in a terminology and a legal jargon that may not look like what it, how a contract was done 14 centuries ago. But the truth is, a contract is still a contract. And when the Quran says, Ya amanu honor your contracts, it's still a contract. And you're still required to honor it. Whether it's written in 270 pages of legal jargon, or it's written with one line on a piece of leather 14 centuries ago. Honor your contracts. That does not change. Those teachings do not change. Now, all of this is because the main point in Islam is that it rests entirely and is entirely based on human nature. And this is perhaps a very distinctive feature in Islam. Islam wants to bring as a legal system, as a teaching from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's bringing human beings back to their true nature. It's aligning humanity back to its true nature. The nature that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created humankind with. Allah says, this is the set of teachings that will allow you to live in a manner that is completely compatible with your true nature, your fitrah, with which I have created you. And this is the reason why this is going to be valid for all eternity. This is going to be valid no matter how much change happens in society or how much change you think has happened to your legal system or your technology or your financial system, your nature is still the same. And therefore, this set of teachings is going to remain in effect and valid for you for all of eternity. Now, if we drill down in a little bit more detail, we see that while Islam does give some details, the majority of the Islamic teachings, the way they are presented, is that, yes, there are things that are fixed there are things that are detailed, but there are a lot of very general principles and rules. Islam will not necessarily come and tell you, 
here's what you do with the green chair and here's what you do with the black chair and here's what you do with the blue chair. It's going to give you a general rule on how to behave and how to handle chairs. So once you've become an expert, you're going to understand that you have the general principle and you will know how to apply it to the green chair or the red chair or the blue chair. It will be up to you to know how to apply it appropriately because you have the right principle. You're relying it on a principle which gives you the general ruling and you have to find the specific application of it, which is different than saying it gives you every instance and whether it applies or not. And this is the whole reason why we have these fields that are called fiqh and then usul al-fiqh. You have your, your, your law, your legal system, and you have your philosophy of law, and you have the common points that you extract from law, and you create rules and principles with them. And in addition to this, this is what you can rationalize, but who says that you're allowed to do this? No, in the case of Islam, Islam tells you that you are allowed to do this. It gives you the right to apply based on your conditions, based on your circumstances, but based on your expertise. So once you have become an expert to the level required to know how to apply, then you can apply. Islam is not going to give you every specific instance where you can break an Islamic law. It just gives you a general rule in Islam that there are exceptions in cases of necessity. So if you are a human being, and you feel that you are about to die of hunger or thirst, Islam gives you a general principle and it tells you, I'm not going to give you the ruling in every case. I'm going to give you a general principle. Your life needs to be saved. You need to protect yourself and save your life and not, and not do anything that puts your life in jeopardy. Therefore, you may eat things that are forbidden or drink things that are forbidden if it means this is the only way to saving your life. And this anyone can apply. If you go to the extent to which you can use your reason, Islam tells you, you must use your reason, but you have to know how. You have to become an expert. Islam says, you have to know how to apply the context. So while I give you the ruling, while I give you the specific rule, I'm also going to tell you, every rule has to be applied within a context. Learn how to read the context to see if that rule changes or not. Anyone who would hear, for instance, that the Holy Quran is being thrown or attacked or ripped would say, this is haram, it's forbidden. Okay, but in the case of the, uh, the Harb Safin, Imam Ali salam, saw that the other army raised the Qara'een and they were telling the group of Imam Ali salam, the army with Imam Ali, we are followers of this Quran. How are you going to attack us and attack these Qara'een that we are carrying? And the Imam told them, I am the Quran. Attack them but his people stopped listening to him. But this is when you know that there is a greater context that you have to learn how to read to see what applies where, which rule applies where. Again, all of this to show examples of how Islam is not about a specific set of teachings and rulings. It's more about general guidelines and principles that you have to know how to apply. And then, of course, Islam gives you there are so many rules, there are volumes written about this on the role of a judge. Why? Because if you're a competent, expert judge in Islam, you are also someone who knows how to read the context and always judge to the greater benefit, to the greater good. 
not the specifics and how to apply the literal law here and there. There is a greater good that has to be taken into account by the judge, by an Islamic judge, a true Islamic judge. And then this is where you see that there is a need for people to become a mujtahid. Because it's this expertise, this ijtihad, that allows you to apply all of these. To know to what extent you can apply your reason. To know to what extent you can read the context. To know to what extent you can judge in this way or in that way. Now, someone may say, well, this is all very, very relative and very theoretical and very abstract. Who says that this is applied in the right way? Well, this is where you have to link it back to the role of the imam. The Holy Prophet lived as a Holy Prophet amongst his people by most historians' accounts about 23 years. So he, how many instances and cases and circumstances could he have possibly presented to his people? Not that many. Limited to 23 years. And of course society changed so much since then. So now if you add the role of the Imams who over more than two and a half centuries after the Holy Prophet, two and a half centuries, they played the role of explaining the teachings of the Holy Prophet and showing how they are supposed to be applied in this instance, in this instance, in that instance. Here you apply it to, to the law, to the letter. Here you have to look at the context. Here it becomes an exception. Here you are missing a piece that if you add it, it changes everything. Well, where did this come from? How do we know that we're applying it right in the right way? Well, of course, maybe you saw two or three instances of it in the time of the Holy Prophet. But when you combine two and a half centuries of your imam's lives, add it to it, and you see how the imams applied the Islamic teachings throughout their lives. Oh, now, instead of having two or three instances in the life of the Holy Prophet with narrations to them, now you may have 10 or 30 or 200 or 500 instances with, every, with all of the imams put together, and you are a lot more confident as an expert and as a faqih to say, this is how you're supposed to apply it. And this is how you're supposed to extract the general rule and apply it to specific instances. And this is inshallah going to be, we're gonna leave it at this, and this is going to be our transition so that when we may start again, after we finalize the topic of the specific prophethood of Prophet Muhammad we are going to jump into the topic of imamah. And we are going, inshallah, to continue with this point. So maybe before we leave, allow me to just thank you all for your attentive attendance and attentive listening and virtual attendance over the past couple of times that we have met. This is going to be the last meeting before we enter into the holy month of Ramadan. Please keep me in your prayers. Over the next few days, you still have a chance to prepare yourselves before you enter the holy month. Do not waste that opportunity. For those of you who follow me on, on Facebook, I do have a link to a previous lecture that we had where we talked about the importance of spiritually preparing yourself. And at that time, we were talking about the importance of spiritual preparation or preparedness in the month of Rajab. So that when we enter into the month of Ramadan, the holy month of Ramadan, we have been preparing for two months. We know what we are about to do. So I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on the YouTube channel. It's on the Facebook page. It's 20 minutes, not longer. So that's simply as a reminder of 
the importance of preparing yourself before you enter into the month of Ramadan. It will be too late that you finally uh, awaken, you know, 10 or 15 days into the month and you start feeling the spirituality of Shahar Ramadan. You have to be maximizing the benefit of Shahar Ramadan from day one, which means that you have to prepare before entering it. So inshallah, that lecture will be helpful. And over the next few days, I will also add the lecture of, for, and it's easy to find, the lecture through which we went in the past. We went very quickly through the sermon of the Holy Prophet when he was introducing the people and reminding them that they are about to enter into the month of Ramadan. He stood on the pulpit and he said this khutbah, this sermon, in which he explains the significance and the importance and the blessings and the mercy, the special character of Shahar Ramadan. So we went through it, as I remind you, and inshallah, I'll add the link in a couple of days so that you can at least refresh your mind with the blessed words of the Holy Prophet before you enter into the Holy Month. Remember that do something so that you feel very clearly that you did not leave the month of Ramadan like you entered it. There has to be a constant improvement. This is the time where you have to seize that opportunity and feel that you have improved. You get a check mark. Give yourself a mandate. Give yourself a commitment. It could be something very simple. But make sure that you accomplish something during this time that you feel is an actual improvement between your relationship and your relationship between yourself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Do not leave this month in the same state as you entered it. And as you prepare to this, on my side, I will only say concentrate on two things. And all the rest is all the bonuses that you can add to it. But those two things do not, in any circumstance, feel weakness. If you have strength, this is where you show on those two things. The first one, take care of your prayers. Do not miss a single prayer. And if you do miss it, make sure that you feel bad about it. And that you do something that it does not happen again. Take care of your prayers and pray them on time as much as possible, especially during the month of Ramadan. That's one. And two, put all of your effort, your primary effort, your main effort should be on refraining, on abstaining from sins. Do not disobey Allah during this month. Concentrate on these two things and take it one day at a time. Don't look at it as this is a 30-day chunk and it's a lot. It's not a 30-day chunk. It's one day at a time. When you wake up, make sure that your intention is you will pray all your prayers and you will pray them on time and there will not be any sins. And if there are sins, you catch yourself, you stop yourself, you remind yourself that there is no shaitan in this month. There is no devil in this month. So do not be the devil for yourself. If there is this seduction coming to you from anywhere, it's going to be from yourself. So you need to cleanse yourself and clean yourself and have the discipline in this month to hold on to your prayers and make sure that they are well taken care of in this month. And two, clean yourself, cleanse yourself in this 30 days, one day at a time. If you can do something one day, you can do it two days. If you can do it two days, you can do it 10. And you can do it 30. And inshallah, if you do it for 30, it becomes your normal way of being for the way you live. Okay, I will not take more of your time. This is the end of the lecture. 
There was a question and inshallah we answered the question, but the details are going to come in uh, the lectures related to imamah where we are going to talk about the type of relationship that they have with the knowledge that they have, where does it come from, and it, can we really call it a revelation or not? And the short answer is this is not revelation in the prophetic sense, so they are not prophets. And that includes Imam al-Mahdi ta'ala farajah al-Sharif, about whom the question uh, was concerned. So that's all the time we had. Inshallah, we will remain in touch, uh, especially over the weeks that we will be off, and we will all see each other again, and inshallah, in much better, much improved social circumstances and conditions. And remember me in your prayers, and I remember you in mine.